welcome to rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our third season of rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. This season is on the rhetoric of X, where X equals a subject, a profession, a field, or a discourse community. Today's topic is the rhetoric of cookbooks, which was suggested by no one. But let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Polos, eroto de tis tecne, opsopoia, Socrates, udemia, o pole. Oh, so appropriate, Tim. But tell us, what exactly are cookbooks? Cookbooks, as far as we know them in the Western world, appeared around the Middle Ages. These cookbooks included anywhere from 1 to 200 recipes and were written in English, German, French, and Italian. And some of them included information on how to present food and host dining parties. Scholars argue, though, that the cookbooks that appeared in the Middle Ages are different from today's versions because of the nature of society. Cities and towns popped up and commerce developed, which resulted in people acquiring spices and this allowed more detailed attention to cooking and such. Mm. But I guess more importantly for what we're talking about here, Tim, uh, was the communication elements of cookbooks. Uh, Recipes were passed down orally from master to apprentice and from mother to daughter. And some people started collecting these recipes and packaging them, whether it be in a box, a drawer, uh, or even, uh, even in book form, the cookbook, which is what we're talking about today. And Tim, as you said, since commerce developed and since people realized that they're, uh, dear old mom wasn't as good of a cook as she thought she was, people started buying cookbooks to refine their culinary practices. True. While most of this was happening among the social and cultural elites and royals, some peasant types, much like your forefathers, Dave, got their hands on some cookbooks. Uh, Joke's on you, Tim. Uh, uh, Most of the generations of my family are illiterate. (laughs) But (laughs) now that we know a little bit about their history, let's talk about the actual rhetoric of cookbooks. Got it, Dave. One of, the ways cook, one of the ways rhetoric people talk about rhetoric is focusing on the genre of the text. Here, genre basically means the kind or types of discourse, and for cookbooks, well, the focus is on recipes. It seems pretty simple stuff, really. I mean, I mean, you could almost any, open any cookbook and know almost instantly that it's a cookbook, right? Quite true, Dave. But I guess there were also subgenres of these cookbooks. Correct. Some cookbooks focused more on technique, Techniques in terms of cooking and preparing food to be cooked and administration, how to run a dining hall or banquet, and some focused on cooking as a form of medical treatment, while others offered more general advice. Kind of like live, laugh, love, that kind of stuff? Something like that. Well, I guess there's, I mean, I guess there's really no other place to say this, so I guess we can say it here, but uh, if you were to walk into a Barnes & Noble in the 1500s, you'd find cookbooks in the medicine section. in effect, cookbooks themselves were classified as a subgenre of those medical books. Makes sense. And then later, uh, when they reorganized the Barnes and Nobles in these Middle Ages, they moved them to the agricultural books. Also makes sense. But then, you know where they ended up? Hunting section. They were in the hunting section. Makes sense. Rather than going to your local grocery store, you'd hunt down your food. But then, Tim, one of my favorite human beings of all time uh, came around the Melville Dewey. He came out with the Dewey Decimal System, uh, which everybody, except the fine folks at the Princeton University Library System, 
uh, when he came out with the Dewey Decimal System, he classified cookbooks as falling under the quote-unquote domestic economy section, which I'm sad to say doesn't see the value of cookbooks as literature or anything more than just a collection of recipes. Um, but let's talk about those recipes, uh, uh, the nature of those cookbooks, I should say, uh, themselves. While cookbooks can be reduced to a simple set of instructions for mutton, wild boar, or Tim, your grandma's secret weed brownie recipe, this <laughs> characterization is a bit of an oversimplification. Yes, cookbooks were arranged in a number of ways. Most contemporary cookbooks are arranged by the type of dish, appetizer, breakfast, meats, fish, desserts, etc. Some older cookbooks were arranged this way, but others were arranged based on the level of complexity. The easiest recipe is listed first, and the hardest recipe is last. This way, the cook would work and improve their skills. Now, Tim, I know you very well, and I know you're a big fan of the uh, the Platonic dialogues. Indeed, I am. So, I'd imagine you uh, I'd imagine you enjoy uh, some cookbooks that uh, were written in the uh, Renaissance. Uh, these cook cooking instructions were revealed via the written dialogue, and one notable example of this comes from a Swedish cookbook. Uh, in this example. A wiser cook instructed a simple house cook how to prepare dishes. And you know what their names were, Tim? No. Magdalena was the learner, and the master was Martha. Get that? I'm yeah. not sure if that Martha was uh, the convicted of insider training. And to be honest, I'm not even sure if insider training was a thing during the Renaissance. But uh, speaking of jail, uh, not Martha, um, one thing inmates do, and I don't know if Martha did this. I'm sure she did. But uh, they write letters to people. Um, and cookbooks followed this approach, uh, the epistolary genre. This type of genre was one in which the letter was written to someone, but the audience was intended to be much greater than the person the letter was addressed to. Diaries can also be considered epistolary. The audience is more than a private journal or oneself. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail or the diary of Anne Frank are notable examples. But now, Tim, since I come from a long line of illiterate folks, I've never read any of those, but I don't believe... Uh, any of those letters from Martin Luther King or Anne Frank had any recipes in them. Is that right? Uh, you're right, Dave. Mm -hmm. The point of all this is that some cookbooks took this approach, writing letters to people, explaining recipes and such. Still, cookbooks include more than just measurements and instructions. They include histories, anecdotes, humor. There are cookbooks, for example, that focus on how to cook on the engine of one's car. Ah, uh, yes, the manifold destiny. And there are food essayists who talk about food then include a recipe. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite examples uh, of not of food, but of drinks is uh, a book called Party Like a President, Tales of Inebriation, Lechery, and Mischief from the Oval Office. Uh, it includes some of the boozing habits of the presidents or the lack thereof. Not all of them are drinkers. Uh, and then each section, uh, each section of, about the president ends with a drink recipe. Uh, the recipe has Martha Washington's Cherry Bounce, uh, to a marijuana-infused martini. Uh, I'm not saying who drank that, but it's in there. Uh, but regardless, uh, getting back to the cookbooks, regardless of the genre or the arrangement, cookbooks appealed to a wide variety of audiences. Right, Tim? Indeed, Dave. There were and are cookbooks for the rich and the poor. Now, Tim, there hey, Tim, did I ever tell you about the, the poorest cookbook I ever saw? No, you did not. No, okay, so I was in Alabama, and I rented a, um, uh, what is it, uh, Airbnb and I found this I stayed in this lady's house and she had a cookbook and I was looking through it and it included a recipe for barbecued wieners <laughs> and do you know what the recipe was what it says cook two hot dogs and cover with barbecue sauce 
Sounds delicious. <laughs> not, not even on a grill, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. All right. There are cookbooks based on religious, ethnic, and national and regional identities for people who want to eat better and people who want to eat tasty food, for professionals and amateurs, and for men and women. And let's not forget firefighters, right? Speaking of grilling, uh, firefighters, because uh, they used to be men only and generally not known for their culinary skills, uh, they specialized in what they were called slammers, concoctions that allowed people to t- cook, to simply put all the ingredients in one pot, toss it in the oven, and slam the door shut. In these ways, cookbook operate rhetorically in society to help influence, define, and represent a community throughout time. Contemporary rhetorical critics have examined the genre of cookbooks focusing on three approaches. First, ideologies embedded within them. In other words, what are the ideas, roles, and norms expressed in the cookbook by those who wrote or compiled them? Second, by examining the rituals and social rules and roles within and surrounding the cookbook. Third, the aesthetic nature of the text, form, style, etc. The story, the list of ingredients, the instructions, pictures. Is it a published book, a homemade spiral book from Kinko's, or a recipe box with clippings and a 3 by 5 index cards? And outside, uh, outside the realm of genre, scholars have also looked at the embodied and performative nature of cookbooks as a rhetorical practice. Uh, embodied in how the recipes and associated texts are a record of the actions and performance of the act of cooking, and how cooking of a family recipe on holidays, for example, invokes a culinary familial custom. And it wouldn't be rhetoric or rama if we didn't assess the logos, ethos, and pathos uh, appeals within this genre. Logos focuses on the list of ingredients and the instructions, which lay out a scientific formula of sorts. Do this and you get that. What is missing, as I've learned, is the skill and technique and practice necessary to achieve a desirable result. You know, Tim, I've, I've never been comfortable uh, with language in some recipes that it's say, you know, a dash of this or a handful of that. Or even what is, what, what constitute, what is classified as warm water when it comes to using yeast? I just don't, I don't get that. And I don't even know if there's truly a difference between paprika and smoked paprika. I think it's just red food coloring. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing you might have smoked some, pa- some mm. oregano in your day, Dave, but nobody smokes paprika. Mm. Pathos can be seen in the historical and narrative elements of the recipe and about the cuisine or biography of the chef found in the opening pages of the book pictures too. You know, Tim, I've, I've often found that recipes in books that don't have pictures just don't have the appeal of the recipes that do. I always find myself making the recipes that have the picture. And I guess kind of doing this episode has kind of clued me into why, because it gives the picture gives me clues on what it should look like and, and how to actually cook it as much as the instructions in themselves. Exactly. While the pictures do offer a visual cue how the dish should look and suggest how to serve the food, it also glamorizes cooking. If the cookbook has been passed down through generations, the pathos might be there in any number of ways. It's more of an inheritance than a cookbook. Good point. Cookbooks are more than instructions. They are a conversation, a story, a gift, and a historical document which hold an emotional appeal. Ethos, a well-worn folded piece of paper or page that's been repeatedly stained each time it was used, or dog-eared page of the cookbook. Are those, uh, are, you know, when you have a cookbook or a page or recipe that's been splattered for how many times you've made it? Anyway, Dave, tell us about some other insights some scholars have looked at cookbooks. 
how women use cookbooks as a way of establishing their worth as cooks and as people. That's right, Tim. Uh, cookbooks were more of a collection of recipes and a written, uh, uh, a written record of domestic work. They showed the value, the importance, and the thought that women put into the work of cooking. And certainly this places uh, women in their quote-unquote traditional role at home. While cooking itself is not a gendered practice in the sociocultural nature of cooking has been and continues to be. And, you know, I'm stricken by the fact that uh, watching these cooking shows on TV, that many of the male cooking shows have sets that reflect a traditional or not a traditional, a professional working kitchen at a restaurant, whereas cooking shows with women uh, as the hosts or stars have sets that resemble more of a, a home kitchen, even if it's built in a studio. Good but, point. But, but we're talking about cookbooks here. Um, the idea, I think, is that women's culinary expertise, regardless of their race, socioeconomic status, religion, nationality, and etc., uh, gave them something to draw upon uh, to make their voices heard. The, recipe tell, the recipes tell of their lives, uh, their experiences, despite being reinforcing, despite reinforcing the ideologies of being, quote unquote, at home. And cookbooks have been held as examples of women involved in technical communication, which is a field that has been overwhelmingly focused on, quote unquote, technical stuff outside the home. Like, uh, like building bombs and wiring diagrams, Tim? Absolutely. <laughs> Scholars also looked at how the sharing of recipes established and maintained relationships with neighbors and family. The mother giving the newly married daughter a cookbook, then passing down and sharing of recipes. You know, that works for men, too. Uh, sons who have moved out of the home will be uh, sometimes be given a cookbook. But these cookbooks are usually, you know, uh, uh, include recipes that say, open a can of or open this package, <laughs> right? Like those hot dog things. Yeah, but, kind of like barbecue wieners. Yeah, like that. And, uh, but I don't know if you've heard of this, Tim, uh, but um, this was in the science news just last week, that once a young boy becomes an independent man, his genetics change a bit, and he becomes more obsessively engaged with barbecuing. <laughs> All right. Did you know that? The, the science can discover anything. It's wonders. But back to the cookbooks, Tim. Uh, then there is the predominant form of contemporary cookbooks, celebrity chefs who have cookbooks. Gordon Ramsay has 26 cookbooks, averaging more than one a year since 1999. Rachel Ray has 28 since 1999. And I guess it should come as no surprise that some scholars see these celebrity cookbooks not as recipe collections, but as a way to engage in marketing and self-branding, right? It's more about the chefs than the actual recipes. Yes, and another scholar looked at cookbooks from celebrity chefs and found that books from female celebrity chefs, Julia Child, Rachel Ray, and the like, focus on teaching people about developing their cooking skills. Cookbooks from male celebrity chefs, such as Emerald Lagasse and Bobby Flay, focus on the authors themselves, what they like, don't like, and their restaurants. And some scholars have moved from examining cookbooks and comparing them to TV shows. So, Tim... Are you ready for your popover pop quiz? I am. All right. So, Tim, what do you think is the major difference between cookbooks and cooking shows? The major difference between cookbooks, which are texts, and cooking shows, which are kind of like dramas, um, I think it's seeing a live-action performance is what cooking shows have, even though a lot of times what they have... They have you preparing the ingredients, and then they switch to a pre-cooked example of it. It's the live-action nature, which is the biggest difference. Yeah, it's uh, uh, cooking shows are spectacles, whereas mm. cookbooks are instruction. 
Exactly. How about that? We good? We're good. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Oh, goody. A rhetorical device. Yay. All right. So uh, here's an appropriate topic, which is a discussion of COIC, the acronym to describe a common problem in technical writing that is clear only if known. Technical writers often exploit the shorthand of discipline-specific jargon, but their message is clear only to those who already know that jargon. For example, if a cookbook suggested that you add a dollop of ghee to the blanched julienned carrots before folding them into the compote, you might say, screw it, I'm going to BK. Oh, that's so true, Tim. It's so true. I, uh, I still don't know what creaming butter means. I don't know. Is that, a, is, is, that. is that a term that the young people use when they're on the TikTok? <laughs> it could be. All right. So, Tim, who's sponsoring this episode? One of the fastest growing nutritional trends of the 21st century is the paleo diet followed by our cave-dwelling ancestors. While it's easy enough for most of us to exclude Pop-Tarts and Frosted Flakes from their grocery list, actually finding meat, fish, and eggs that aren't full of agribusiness chemicals is a bit more difficult. And that's where the roadkill deli comes in. Many of the deer, raccoons, and squirrels found at the side of any busy road have grown up eating mostly unprocessed food. Consequently, their meat is relatively free of the herbicides, pesticides, and hormones that go into the animal protein found in today's supermarkets. The challenge, however, is getting to the roadkill before the vultures and maggots have spoiled the fare. Using the Google Maps or Waze apps, drivers can now report the location of recently killed animals so that the closest Uber, Lyft, or DoorDash drivers can scoop up the fresh meat and deliver it to our nearest processing plant. As soon as the roadkill has been professionally butchered, the item is entered into our eBay store where would-be paleo dieters can bid on these tasty morals. morsels. That's the Roadkill Deli, where social media and artificial intelligence meet the Stone Age. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been Rhetoric-O-Rama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library.